Christ in Relationships is Dr. Joel Hunter's series, and we begin with message number one, Recognizing God. From the New American Standard, Dr. Hunter's text is taken from Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40, and it reads as follows. And after he had said these things, he was going on ahead, ascending to Jerusalem. And it came about that when he approached Bethphage and Bethany, near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, in which, as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it, and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Thus shall you speak. The Lord has need of it. And those who were sent went away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and they threw their garments on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he was going, they were spreading their garments on the road. And as he was now approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the multitude said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered and said, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. And now let's join in for praise and worship, followed by Dr. Joel Hunter's new series, Christ in Relationships, and his first message, Recognizing God. Well, those of you who have your scriptures with you can turn with me to the 19th chapter of Luke. I am so glad you've come this Sunday to hear about this. We are changing uh, segments of our entire year preaching on relationships. In the first segment, we talked about why we were made for relationships, to reflect the nature of God, which is at once both plural and singular. And we talked about the deterioration of relationships that can be traced through Adam and Eve and through Cain that we have inherited as temptation and tendency to destroy our own relationships. So we're left in this sorry mess. But here comes a turning point. We're going to examine another period of history that God has developed. The period of Christ's life from Palm Sunday through the beginning of the church. And we are going to see in that period how Christ builds and forms relationships to be resident in his church. Because there's a very different matter of building a human-to-human relationship and Christ forming a relationship specifically so that he can use us together. And through examination of this period of history, in light of Scripture, we can see one principle after another that Christ laid down for his people. And we can partake of them and be formed for relationships by Christ. Now, let's read this Palm Sunday uh, Account, beginning with verse 28. And after he had said these things, he was going on ahead, ascending to Jerusalem. From where he was at, Jerusalem was a climb. From where we are at, Jerusalem is a climb. And it came about that when he approached Bethage and Bethany, near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you. 
in which you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you are untying it, thus you shall speak. The Lord has need of it. And those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, and this is this curious phrase again, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and they threw their garments on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And as he was going, they were spreading their garments on the road. Now this is a, this is a typical male arranged parade. They get in the middle of the thing, they haven't got anything to throw, they start taking off their clothes. Yeah, a, you know, no details thought of ahead here. And they were spreading their garments on the road, and as he was now approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives. You see, he had climbed to a place where he could oversee the city, overlook the city, and now he was at a place, a turn in the road that he could descend. Read on with me. The whole multitude of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven. Remember what the angels sang when Jesus was born. They sang, Peace on earth. Now that Jesus has come to that time that he has proclaimed King, his rightful place on earth, we sing, Peace in heaven. It is now complete. And glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the multitude said to him, Teacher, Rebuke your disciples. And he answered, they, by the way, they knew what he was saying here. They knew what he was saying. People, don't ever let you, anyone tell you that Jesus never claimed to be king of the world and God. Because people who are in this culture know exactly what's going on. They are so upset of the blasphemy. So, These are the religious ones, the Pharisees. And they are so upset that a man would get glory, not understanding that this man is God. And Jesus Jesus replies this, replies with a simple fact. And he answered and said, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Now, let's talk about how Jesus forms relationships. Let's talk about dreams proclaimed. Let's talk about recognizing God and how He has put us together. Because that's exactly the story of Palm Sunday. There are two ways to build relationships, and they are very different, and they have very different ends. One is human to human. The other is God pulling us together for His purposes. The ways are differentiated in Acts chapter 5. That's not on your outlines, but you can write it down if you like. Acts chapter 5, verses 38 and 39. This is the beginning of the church. The religious leaders who are threatened by the church want to go out and tear the church apart. And a very wise rabbi, Gamaliel, stands and speaks. And he speaks a word with eternity in it. And this is his word. Brothers, if this is of men... It will fall apart of its own accord. 
If it is of God, it will not fail. And you might even be found opposing God. Could I say that is exactly the principle for relationships today? If they are human-to-human relationships, almost certainly they will fall apart. And they will certainly deteriorate unto meaninglessness. If we build our relationships as human beings do, of under contract, I'll do this for you, you do this for me. And if somebody doesn't fulfill their half, then certainly the relationship is ruined or I'll withdraw what I was going to do. Entropy sets in. They become disunified. They become detrimental to us. But there's a different kind of relationship, and that's the one that God calls for His purposes. That's the one with the dream in it. Maybe we could do something together for God. That's the one that He is building. And the curious thing about that relationship is that whereas it won't face any fewer impediments, it might face more impediments. It'll come out stronger. Because God's relationships don't fail. If they're built of man, they will almost certainly fail. If they're built of God, they will never fail. Because God is the one who's building them. And this is the story of Palm Sunday. This kind of hmm, pathetic parade. I mean, the Jews, the Hebrews are given to spontaneous parades. You know, go to, go to Jerusalem and, and, and some of these towns you will see, on a, especially on a, a, a Sabbath, a Shabbat night. You know, those, you'll see parades, you know. And that'll be cool. And so, spontaneous parades was not anything strange to them. To us, we, we arrange them. You know, typical Westerners. You know, we get the horse brigade and the little guys on motorcycles and so on and so forth. I want to tell you, this was no Cecil B. DeMille production here. But there was something substantive that would last forever. There was a recognition of what God was about to do. The disciples had absolutely no idea of the devastation they would face, nor the glory they would see. But there was a proclamation ahead of time. This is what we're about. It was a proclamation of dreams. Let me ask you, do you ever feel gripped by eternity? Do you ever sense the fact that the relationships you have are not by accident? The relationships you have are arranged by God. Do you ever feel that God has somehow put me where I am for His purpose. And I really don't see fully what that is. I can't really tell what the future is going to be, but somehow God has appointed me to this time, to this circumstance. Do you ever get the sense of Esther, for example, who found herself in a curious circumstance, a Jewish queen, in a Gentile nation, faced with a very tough decision about whether or not to support God's people in an open way. And Mordecai came to her. This is Esther 4.14. He looks at her and says, Esther? He said, in essence, it's not whether or not God's plan will be accomplished. For God will raise up a people to accomplish His plan. But you and your family may be taken out of the picture. But who knows, Esther, he said. If not, God has brought you to this time and place for just such a time as this. Well, Esther, that's all she needed. She needed that God 
God's overview, God's vision. God sensed that from the foundations of the world, it had been arranged that she be put there for that time and that place. And she decided to become protective of her people. And in the 16th verse, she says, okay, I'm going to do this thing. And if I perish, I perish. You see, it wasn't whether or not she survived. It's whether or not she survived doing God's work. And if she didn't survive doing God's work, she was still going to die doing God's work. That was important. She had a dream. She'd been gripped. And she was ready to proclaim that she was there for the purposes of God. There is something wonderful about that. There is something when Christ says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There's some sort of dream there. That we are in this body of people that are going to storm hell. We're not just going to escape evil. We're going to destroy evil. There's something there, you see. There's a different relationship, a different aspect to our relationship. One that doesn't need to know all the details of the future, even as the disciples didn't need to know all the details of the future. We are on this unmanifest destiny. There was a, there was a, a poet in the last century, Richard Hovey, who wrote a poem entitled Unmanifest Destiny. That is a destiny that has not yet been shown us. You remember our country was built on the concept of a manifest destiny. We were very evidently supposed to be something that God was working and I believe we still are. But there is this sense, you know, uh, of being formed for something that we have not yet fully seen. And we just feel like God is going to use us somehow. There's that anticipation. There's that dream. And, and if you'll allow me to murder a few of these stanzas, I will communicate to you the essence of this poem. It's a great poem. He says, To what new fates, far and unforeseen of foe or friend, beneath what unexpected star, compelled to what unchosen end. There is a hand that bends our deeds to mightier issues than we planned. Each sun that triumphs, each that bleeds, my friends, are held by his firm command. I do not know Beneath what sky, nor on what seas shall be thy fate. I only know it shall be high. I only know it shall be great. I want to tell you, when I look at you, I think of that poem. I sense God has something great. I have absolutely no idea. I have absolutely no idea what we're going to have to go through to get there. But I know God's grabbed a hold of us. I know God's put relationships in my life for a purpose. I know also that as long as I understand that dream, as long as I can make that proclamation, it doesn't matter how much need I have in my life. It doesn't matter how much it will cost me. And it doesn't matter how much it will cost you. Do you remember living through phases of your life that were very difficult, but you didn't care because you had a dream? Do you remember? I hope you do. You know, most people, when they start out, got nothing when they start out. But they're stupid. They don't realize how much they haven't got. 
Because they've got this dream. See, we've got our whole lives ahead of us. I can remember when Beck and I started. We didn't have anything. And boy, it didn't matter. Who cares? We, used to, we, had, we had cereal for supper some nights. It didn't matter. We were full. We, were, we, we had eaten. It didn't matter. But we had this dream, see? We're going to do something for God. We're going to raise great kids. We're going to... And oh, these, these just kept coming up. We used to have the, the, a Japanese car before Japanese goods were good. You remember when Japanese stuff was junk? We had one of those cars. And we, would, we were climbing this little... That sounded like a little bee. Hmm, going down the highway. And... And, and, and we didn't have any uh, uh, air conditioning, so we rolled down the windows and the filaments from the carpet just go, <laughs> just flew up. I mean, it was bad. And we'd be rolling down the highway singing, Oh, we ain't got a barrel of money. Maybe we're ragged. Remember that song? We'd sing out to the top of our lungs. We had a dream. We had a dream. Do you understand where a dream can take you? What is it that makes people lose that dream? We come home just as tired and just as beat up as we used to. And the reason that, that our relationship's just as strong as it always was is because we've never lost the dream. What makes people lose that dream? What makes people start to pay attention to what they don't have? What makes people lose the fact that it doesn't matter how much you need? What makes people go to God and just start complaining and whining about how they can't do ministry because their needs aren't fulfilled? They've got this need. They haven't got the resources. Do you understand that you're not only talking to the God who can answer every need according to His riches and glory, but you're talking to a God who lived the other end of the spectrum also? What a curious phrase. The Lord has need. What a curious phrase. You're talking to a God when you go and say, I can't do this anymore. I have too many needs. You're talking to a God who had to borrow an animal trough to be born in. He knows what need is. You're talking to a God in order to preach, had to borrow a boat to launch out a little bit so he could teach his people. You're talking to a God who, when he wanted to feed the multitudes, had to go beg some lunch from a little boy. He borrowed a kid's lunch, and that's how he did it. You're talking to a God who knows what need is. When he met the Samaritan woman at the well, he had to borrow a cup of water. didn't have anything to draw with. He had to borrow a colt, a, colt, a donkey, to proclaim his kingship. He had to borrow a room to have a last supper, and he had to borrow a tomb to be buried in. And we're going to him and say, Oh, God, I've got needs. God knows what needs are. You know what? It didn't matter. It didn't matter. He had the greatest ministry the world has ever seen. And he was a God who needed. Do you think your needs ought to stop you from the greatness God has for you? Do you think your needs can stop you from fulfilling the dream that you can see through the vision of God? You know what? We've lost something great in this country, and that is the art of getting along. I'm not talking interpersonally. I'm talking about with circumstances. Do you, did you ever have anybody in your family who had the gift of hospitality, and when people came around, somehow they got included, even though there weren't enough resources there for the family that was there? I had an aunt like this. She had a big family. 
And back when I grew up, people just dropped in around supper time. You know? Neighbors dropped in. Relatives would drop in around supper time. And the kids would be standing there looking at my aunt, Aunt Frances, still alive. God bless her heart. She is one of the most on-fire Christians I've ever known in my entire life. Charismatic Catholic. Holy cow. You get, you get, I tell you what, you get cold, you get to stand around and warm yourself by this woman. And I tell you what, they used to look at her thinking to themselves, we haven't got enough food for ourselves. And my Aunt Frances would always say the same thing. We'll make do. We'll make do. You know what? It doesn't matter how much you don't have. You'll make do. He'll make do. God can't stop just because the parade is pitiful. And it doesn't know what's coming around the bend. He'll make do. We've got to have that confidence. We've got to keep that dream. And the fact is, God, when you have that dream, doesn't count the cost and neither do you. All of us could sit down and say, man, this is killing me. You know, I'm not sure I can pay this price. If a dream's got a hold of you and dragging you around by the chest, you can pay any price. You can pay any cost. Because the dream and the proclamation of that dream and being with Christ and building eternity is everything. God has shown us that pitiful circumstances and even outright adversity cannot stop us and it's worth any cost. Jesus showed us that. You know what? When the Pharisees that day said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples, there was a cost to be paid that day. And on into the coming week. But it didn't matter. They were willing to pay any cost. Jesus was. That's what it took. You know, the first time I read Romeo and Juliet, I, Shakespeare, I loved that painting. I mean, and there's a scene, this balcony scene. Oh, I loved it. She's out. See, Romeo's just flat overhead in heels in love with this woman. I mean, crazy nuts in love with her. And he's hiding down in the bushes, just hoping to catch a, catch a glimpse of her. And she comes out on the balcony. And she proclaims her love for Romeo to the starry night. Oh, he's down in ecstasy and ag- agony. He's saying to himself, should I, should I let her know I'm here? I don't want to embarrass her. Oh, I can't stay away from her. Oh, And then there's this evidently high orchard wall built out of stones. And he can't take it any longer. And he climbs the stones up to the top of the wall. <laughs> and she looks at him. And he says, she's, she's thinking, how in the world did he, did he get up here? And she says... The orchard wall is so high and the climb is so hard. And the place you stand is death, considering who thou art, if any of my family discovers you. Her family hated him. So he looks at her kind of goofy and goes, Stony limits cannot hold love out. In other words, he was he was willing to pay any price. You know what I think of when I think of those words, stony limits, cannot hold love out? I think of the day that Jesus looked at the Pharisees and said, You know what? If these were silent, the stones would cry out. Because stony limits cannot hold love out. You know what I think of? I think of the stupid 
attempt to keep God out of the world, putting him in a tomb and rolling a huge boulder over that tomb. Because stony limits can't keep love out. I want to tell you, keep the dream. It is worth any price because stony limits can't keep love out. I want to tell you, keep the proclamation that what you are doing in your relationships is of Christ. What you are building is of eternity. And you will be used much more than you ever intended to be. Pray with me. God, as we consider this dream, this first aspect of a relationship, being grabbed by eternity, realizing that we're not in love with people, not connected just to fulfill our own gratification, but we're connected in order to fulfill your plan. God, help us to have the vision. Help us to understand that you are in this thing. Help us to be grabbed by our chest and drug around by, by such a great goal that needs seem insignificant and costs seem peripheral. God, help us to stand in that pitiful crowd on Palm Sunday, proclaiming the Lordship of Jesus Christ so that we can attach ourselves to that dream. God, I realize this morning there may be some here who have never committed themselves to the eternal things, but they want to. They know their life every day falls apart. And they have this sense that all of their relationships are ultimately meaningless. And they don't really make a significant difference. God, if you've quickened their hearts and let them know they can be in on building eternity, let them now come to you and say, God, count me in. Forgive my sin through the death of your son who paid for my sins because I could never pay for them. And God, come into my heart and live and make of my life whatever you want. But God, let me help build eternity. Build eternity in my relationships and let my relationships build heaven on earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are about to partake in the sacrament of communion. Before I call the um, communion service forward, let me go over with you some of the more traditional ways of the communion service. I will read the prayers and we will pray them through my reading. The prayers that are hundreds of years old. Because I want us to know as we take this that the dream did not come yesterday. The dream was proclaimed on Palm Sunday and has been in the heads and the hearts of believers ever since and we stand on their shoulders completing what they begun those of you who are Christians listen to this ye that do truly and earnestly repent of your sins and are in love and charity with your neighbors and intend to lead a new life following the commandments of God and walking from henceforth in his holy ways draw near with faith 
And take this holy sacrament to your comfort and make your humble confession to Almighty God. Let me pray the prayer of humble confession for us all while you pray it in your hearts. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, maker of all things, judge of all men, we acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness, which we from time to time most grievously have committed by thought, word, and deed against thy divine majesty. We do earnestly repent and are heartily sorry for these our misdoings. The remembrance of them is grievous unto us. Have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, most merciful Father. For thy Son, our Lord Jesus Christ's sake, forgive us all that is past, and grant that we may ever hereafter serve and please thee in newness of life, to the honor and glory of thy name, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.